Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be here at ASI. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and of understanding your plan for our lives. I pray that you'll bless us as we look at business finances in the end times today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm actually going to give you uh, a few minutes of introduction, and then uh, are you going to help me with the handout at the appropriate time? Mm -hmm. Okay. There we are. Let me keep one. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of Bible verses and a couple of Spirit of Prophecy quotations, and then we'll look real quickly at the situation we're in today. The Bible actually talks about in, you know, James the fifth chapter and also 2 Timothy the third chapter, verses 1 to 5, about money management in the end times. Uh, this one is 2 Timothy, the third chapter. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. You think that describes our day today? Yeah. I mean, this is incredible when you think about it. Uh, it was reported in the Washington Post last year that the average professional person with a master's degree or more makes about 100000 a year. And in 40 years of working, at that rate, you would make about $4 million. Now, this is not a big deal over your lifetime, except to say that during the financial crisis, many bankers on Wall Street got $40 million bonuses, which is 10 times what a professional would earn in his entire life. That's the fulfillment of this without any question. I mean, it's incredible when you see it. So it says, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, from such turn away. And this is a statement that I found in the 13th, uh, page 13 of volume 9 of the Testimonies. There are not many, even among educators and statesmen, who comprehend the causes that underlie the present state of society. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problem of moral corruption. Now, just to give you an idea, when our current president, President Obama, was choosing his cabinet, at least four of his nominees had not paid their own taxes, including our current Treasury Secretary. Poverty, pauperism, and increasing crime. And then this is one that's so amazing to me. Ellen White noted, they are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. Now, if you're struggling in vain, are you going to be successful? No. So how many more billions of dollars needs to be poured into stimulus? Do you understand what I'm telling you? In a few minutes, you're going to see something amazing, really. But the reason that we're here this afternoon is if men would give more heed to the teachings of God's Word, they would find a solution of the problems that perplex them. So we want to look at what God's Word has to say about it. I found this interesting statement, Book Evangelism, page 240-241, poverty is coming upon the world and there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Now this is amazing. You understand that the entire economy is tied in together, don't you? It's, it's pretty incredible when you think about it. Now I just found this one. Uh, by the way, uh, this is not necessarily an academic reference, uh, AARP bulletin, but they were talking about the president has just put up a, a committee to study what to do about the economy. And uh, the problem, by the way, I don't recommend uh, AARP. Primarily, from my perspective, it is an organization trying to sell you insurance. Uh, that's about what it is, period. But anyway, in the simplest terms, the federal government is spending $3 for every $2 it collects. And it's borrowing the rest. 
what family budget or what business, I add, can possibly survive on that formula? The federal government can't either. And then by any measure, the nation is on an unsustainable course that is more perilous the longer it goes unaddressed. And the Washington, well, let me just point this one out to you. The US national debt clock, if you get on the internet and put national debt, this clock comes up. And as of July 29, 2010, when I got this one off at 12.57 and 45 seconds p.m. Uh, Greenwich Mean Time is 13 trillion, 264 billion and on in debt. This is the national debt. Notice the bottom line. The national debt has continued to increase on an average of 4.12 billion per day since September 28, 2007. So if you put this up, this thing is going over and over and over. It just keeps really, it's, it's incredible. It's estimated that the budget deficit will triple in the next, not triple, double, I'm sorry, double in the next 10 years, uh, which is really, really interesting. So the Washington Post stated, Washington's habit of spending today the money it hopes to collect tomorrow is getting worse and worse. It even has elements of a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you cannot borrow money to pay your debts and expect to be rich at the end of the day. Is that true? You, you understand the situation. When I was at General Conference, uh, uh, Elder Falkenberg uh, talked with me briefly and he asked me, he came to me and asked me, he says, you need to write another book on money management, let people know what's happening in the world today. And he recommended this book, some of you have probably read it, I ordered it on the internet and I'm about three-fourths of the way through it, called Aftershock. And it's very, very interesting. Most of us are aware that there are, in our financial economic system in America, we have these cycles, you know, where you have a, a bear cycle and, a, and a, a bull cycle, et cetera. But we are not in a cycle. Things are changing and they will not be like they used to be. Everybody needs to understand that. And this book actually says that within two or three years at the most, things will be much worse than they are today. This is not a political book. It's not Democrat or Republican. It's just economists looking at the economy. It's called Aftershock. And the principal authors are Widmer's, David Widmer, PhD, and his brother Robert. Uh, very interesting book. Uh, so we're going to go on here, and I will give you a couple of other points. The plunge in stocks and real estate has reduced Americans' net worth by an astounding $14 trillion in the last two years about $121,000 per household. In addition, research shows that the typical American has so little set aside for retirement that meeting basic needs will be a struggle. Now, retirement is a big deal because I wanna give you a statistic that I know is a true statement and is this. Starting next year, 2011, the baby boomers will begin reaching their full retirement age. I'm in that group. I will reach my full retirement age next year. When that happens, there will be 10,000 Americans reaching full retirement age every day of the week for several years. Now, you understand what that will do to the Social Security system because the people that are still left working are primarily new immigrants that are working at minimum wage, you understand. So it's a very, very serious situation when you look at it from that perspective. So I'm an attorney, so I'm just going to ask you a question that I would ask in the court if I was trying to swear in an expert witness. Can we stipulate, that is agree, that the economy is in a mess? Okay, and the second thing I want you to stipulate is that we're living near the end of this world's history as we know it. 
So if we have that in mind, then what I'm going to tell you from here on is going to make a lot more sense to you. So you'll, you'll make something about this. I recently did a series of sermons that I've given at a number of camp meetings called The Certainty of the Second Coming of Christ. If you haven't heard those, I would recommend that you get a set somewhere and you'll understand that it is very likely that we are the generation that will see the literal second coming of Christ. So my title is not a catchy title, it is a realistic title. How do we manage in the end times? And so that's what I want to show you about. Okay, we're ready for the handout now. We'll just give every family at least one of these. I, I made plenty, I think. But what I'm going to do is give you, uh, many of you have heard me speak before, so I do lists, and this one is a list of how many do you think I have on there? Seven. Seven things to do. Financial protection checklist. So we have a couple of people handing these out, and uh, as soon as you get one, we're, this is not the whole program. I'm going to try to do this in about 15 minutes, and then you can turn it over and make notes on the back side, because only one side has uh, printing on it. So I want to get started right away. The first one is to put God first in your life and your business. Now, this is not a duh thing. This is the realistic stuff. So while they're handing these papers out, I want to tell you guys a quick story. I was traveling uh, a year or so ago from Chicago to Montreal on a night flight, evening flight. And uh, most of you know that most of the airlines today, every seat is taken. When Kathy and I came down here yesterday, every seat in our plane was totally full. It's just incredible. The, the amazing thing was, in this particular case, when I was flying from Chicago to Montreal, I was flying on a small jet, only 50 seats, and the seat beside me was not taken when the door closed. So I thought to myself, well, I can spread out a little bit and kind of, you know, relax. And instead, all of a sudden, here came this guy running up from the back and sat down beside me. And it's kind of funny because I always try to greet people in some way. And I said, where did you come from? Because I knew that he hadn't put his luggage around me or anything. And he said, if you don't like flying, this is going to freak you out a little bit. But what he said to me, this is really what he said. The flight attendant sent me up to sit by you so I could help balance the load. <laughs> this is really true. At any rate, he was a little bit miffed that he had to come sit by me. Not because it was me necessarily, but because he'd already stowed his stuff in the back, you know, up overhead and all of that, and his coat and everything, and he would have to go back there and be one of the last people off the plane to get off. Anyway, I asked him what he did, and he said that he was flying to Montreal, which he did, I think, every weekend because his family lived in Madison, Wisconsin. He was a fourth-year resident at McGill University Medical School in Montreal and just about to finish his residency. And uh, he told me they had an autistic child that was requiring special education that they had in Madison, Wisconsin, where his family lived through the week and so on, and about his school bills and everything. And then he asked me, of course, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm going up to speak to a bunch of pastors about money management. He says, thank God, now I know why I'm sitting beside you. You have two and a half hours to straighten out my mess. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you what I told him first. I said several years ago, I was scheduled to speak in, this, in down near Atlanta for a big convention, you know, like this one. And on Wednesday, before I was speaking on the weekend, I got laryngitis, I could not speak. And so I went to my Jewish physician, Dr. Michael Leibowitz, and I said, Doc, you're gonna have to help me. And he says, what's the problem? I said, I can't talk. And I've gotta speak this weekend. So this is really interesting. He said to me, I bet you'd like for me to give you a shot or a capsule or something to make you well, wouldn't you? I said, that's exactly why I came here. 
he said to me, this is real interesting now, he says, he calls me by my first name, he says, Ed, I could do that for you and it'd probably make you feel better, you know, psychologically, but the best thing you could do would be to get a glass of water as hot as you can take it and put some salt in it and gargle with that, you know, do that like three times a day. If you do that by the weekend, you'll be well. I did and I was. So I also had a similar experience in India, but I'm just going to tell you this. I turned to the doctor sitting beside me, this young physician, and I said, do you think he gave me the right remedy? He says, oh, sure. So I said to him, do you want a shot or do you want the gargle treatment? That's what I said to him. So I had already determined that he was a Christian, and he had read his Bible through once he thought. Anyway, I said, listen, I'm an attorney, and I'm a financial counselor, and I make my, you know, I work full time teaching people about money management. The very best thing I could tell you is put God first in your life. Amen. Very best thing I could tell you. And I want to tell you this before I go further in this. There is no recession in heaven, and God is not broke, and if you're his partner, you won't be broke either. Amen. I believe that. So, we'll go on now. Here's a couple, I'm going to make a couple of statements. You see these in your papers there. The wise man's counsel is still valid. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Now you could also see it, I put the reference there, uh, Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14, and uh, also I have 9th Testimonies 245 to 252. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you next. The devil would like your finances to be all messed up, your marriage messed up, your career messed up, and everything. You believe that's a fair statement? Yeah. So what I'm going to tell you now, sincere, honest people will try to dissuade you from being faithful to God. I'm going to tell you. And by the way, Almost everybody that gets involved in a get-rich-quick scheme and loses a lot of money were introduced to that get-rich-quick scheme by their friends who sincerely thought they were doing them a favor. Isn't this true? So somebody comes to you. I'm going to tell you now, I don't have time, and this is not a sermon on tithing, but any question you could ever have about tithing is going to be answered right there. Ninth Testimony is 245 to 252. You cannot ask a question about tithing that wouldn't be answered there. Uh, remember, this is in the testimonies. There's a statement called faithful stewardship. Ellen White gave it to the California constituency meeting. It's incredible information. Any question you could ever have is answered there. And people will come along and tell you, well, you know, there was somebody claiming to be a prophet a year or so ago and said that if you return your tithe to the church where they're, uh, you know, uh, standards are down and they're doing you know all kinds of stuff in church and so on God's gonna hold you responsible that is not true at all it's plain in the spirit of prophecy that if you do what God asks you to do he will not hold you responsible even if the brother misused the money but I'm just gonna you'll find those statements I may even have it later we'll go on Jesus himself said but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What's the context? Food, clothing, and shelter. God says, I know you need food. I know you need clothing. I know you need shelter. If you put me first, I'm going to take care of your family. That's important stuff. All these things will be added. Current economic conditions bring to mind the words of an old song. If we ever needed the Lord before, we sure do need him now. It would not be a time to bail out on God. I can tell you that for sure. So now is the time to trust God that he will sustain us and provide for our needs. Ellen White noted in Education 145, no scheme of business or plan of life can be sound or complete that embraces only the brief years of this present life and makes no provision for the unending future. 
Second point, we're going to go really quickly down through these, I hope, so I have lots more to tell you about after that. Make plans to get completely out of debt. Now, it's been kind of a notion in the past, you make money with other people's money. I'm telling you, from my perspective, get out of debt. This is important. Start by paying off all your credit card debt and all variable rate debts. You understand the variable rate type thing? Madness. By the way, almost everybody who lost their home with a subprime mortgage had a variable rate. Incredible. I mean, I wish I had time to tell you about that situation alone. But at any rate, have a yard sale, sell off all the possessions that you don't actually need. Sell collectibles, art, other valuables, and don't have, that don't have sentimental value to you. They'll bring more now than they will later. If you have a variable rate mortgage, convert it to a fixed rate, because it's below 5% now, as you know, if you have reasonable credit. And then also set up a plan to prepay your home mortgage and any other business debts. What, should you, what time is it? I ask this question when I do a home seminar. What time is it if your CPA tells you not to pay off your house, you need the interest deduction? Time to get a new CPA. It's very, very simple. And I will just tell you, we ought to know by now that it's not good business to spend a dollar to save a quarter. Do you understand? Your best bet is to be totally debt free. Very, very important, especially when we know for a certainty that the economy is going to tank worse than it is now. And this is really important to know. Third one is spend less than you earn. Now, the reason I say that is because almost half of Americans spend more than they make every month. Very incredible. We decry the government's de uh, debt of over 13 trillion and the bailout of banks at 700 billion, but American consumers are equally guilty of overspending. The outstanding credit card balances, that is the amount that's unpaid and carried over from month to month. In other words, you pay the minimum payment or whatever and there's some that's unpaid, is now over 915 billion in the United States. Every month that much is paid interest on, incredible. The principle here is to be content with what we have and to learn to live within our income. Presently, about 43% of American families spend more than they earn each year. And my counsel is don't be one of those people. Live within your income. And here's another one, number four, four is save some money at every pay period or income time if you're in business and your pay periods are more random. Uh, Kathy and I have money taken out, uh, I'm gonna guess it's 10 or 15%, Every month it goes straight away to our credit union. So when our taxes come due or any other thing that we have problems with, we have the money there to do it. Do you see what I'm saying? Because if you have it in your checking account, guess what most people will do with it? We'll spend it out. So here it is. Those who followed the principle and have at least six months worth of living expenses in cash savings uh, in the bank are much better shape than those who are in debt. A savings account provides protection when there is a job loss, car breakdown, health concern, or other event that could hurt your financial security. So here's a little nest egg idea. This is for, for help you to weather an economic storm. Now I've put a little statement here that's starting right there. It's a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy and Ellen White stated in Adventist Home 396, you might today have had a capital of means to use in case of emergency and to aid the cause of God if you had economized as you should. Every week a portion of your wages should be reserved and in no case touched unless two things come up. The first one is what? You're suffering an actual want, there's some kind of an emergency, or to render back to God the giver in offerings. You know, that, that's the amazing thing. Either to make a contribution to God's cause or if you have an emergency in your own situation. Now here's something that's pretty amazing. Do everything you can to keep your job. 
If you look on the internet of the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the federal government, they say that uh, in 81, 1981, for example, 30% of American workers had spent less than one year on their job, which means that people changed jobs. Last year, or several years back, say three years ago, about 20% of people changed their job. And most of these were upward mobility things. Do you know what it was last year? Less than 2%. People say, if I hate my job, I'm not quitting for anything because I'm glad I have a job. Do you understand? This is important stuff. So do everything you can to keep your job or keep your business going. The Bible says, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Of course, that's Proverbs 22, 29. There's much said in the Bible about integrity and work. Ask God for wisdom to do your work efficiently so that you'll be able to continue to work in these hard times. Now, many of you probably are not going to be in a position to use this next counsel, but if you should lose your job, be willing to work at whatever job is available that would not violate your conscience. Understand those kind of things would be like a bartender, a go-go dancer, or something. But most any other thing, any reasonable work, anybody should be willing to do it if they really want to. The next one is be conservative in your investments. It's amazing to me. Everybody, everybody ought to know that as you near retirement age, you cannot afford to risk your principal. You need to get in conservative investments. However, I have counseled with many people my age who lost 30 or 40% of their savings for retirement because they were holding on to it too long in risky stocks. Do you believe I'm telling you the truth about this? It's amazing stuff. So be conservative in your investments. Now here's one, I put this in gold letters here. Remember that there is no more secure investment than investing in your own debts. Now, this is very valuable to know. People come to me and say, is it time to start investing again? And my answer is yes, if you have any debts, there's no more secure place to put it than there. Whatever your interest rate is, that's the interest rate you earn. And by the way, if you should lose your job and you have lots of debts, another thing people tell me, well, you know, I've paid my mortgage down halfway, I don't need to go further with it. Listen carefully, if you lose your job and you lose three payments, you just lost your house if you can't make the payments. Pay it off. That's what I keep telling people. It's important. Beyond paying off your debts uh, during times of uncertainty, the better part of wisdom suggests that investments be on the conservative side. This means FDIC insured accounts. Now this is almost laughable when the government is $13 trillion in debt. However, the government has the unique ability to print money and they still are the most secure place. Does everybody understand that? That's as far as the world is concerned. So if you have a surplus of means, it's a good time to invest in the cause of God. And the needs of God's work continue even in hard times. Uh, Larry Burkett, the late Larry Burkett, he died about four years ago, stated, it's my strong conviction that becoming debt-free, including the home mortgage, should be the first investment goal for any young couple or person. Once you've achieved that goal, then and only then should you invest in other areas. So becoming debt-free. The last one of this set is keep your eyes on the future. This one is, to me, very interesting. You remember there's three parables in Matthew 25, and the middle parable is the parable of the talents, where the Lord called his servants and gave them his assets, and the Bible says after a long time he came and said, give an account of your stewardship. So we must all give an account of the management of God's resources. Did you hear what I said about whose resources they were? The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If he's the creator, what am I? 
I'm a creature. If he's the creator, he's the owner. So I'm going to be a manager, and that's all I'll ever be. This is important stuff I'm telling you. Would you like Christian estate planning in a nutshell? Since God is the owner of everything, when I'm finished with it, what should I do with it? Give it back to him. It is very simple. And people will argue to their last breath on that one, but it makes sense to me. Let's go on. Uh, Here's another one. Our real home is in heaven, of course. The events of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. Someday soon, before I read this, I want to tell you something. When you're in the market out there in the business world, there's something called inside information that you're not supposed to know or act on. You know, Martha Stewart spent some time in federal prison because of this. You, you understand all that stuff. We actually have inside information. We know that someday soon this world is going to get burned up and everything in it. And of course, that will reduce its value considerably, as you can imagine. So what I'm going to tell you now is look at this part. Here it is. The Bible says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. By the way, the coming as a thief in the night to the wicked, to the lost. If you read in 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, when it talks about thief in the night, if it's a thief to me, I'm lost. So it can't be that way. It will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, here's something interesting. The fact that it all gets burned up will not be a great disappointment to the Christian. Why not? Because his treasures are already stored up in heaven. And you do that by helping others and helping advance the cause of God. So we're going to now, I'm going to show you something that it seems to me that when you, when you're, well, let me say it this way. You have three sections to your life. Everybody has three sections to your life. And that is your first is your learning years when you're getting your education. Does everybody understand that part? And the middle years is the earning years when you're beginning to pay off your debts, pay off your house, educate your children, and so on. By the way, if you don't do the first one right, getting your education, welcome to living in an amused mobile home and working in McDonald's. Do you understand? Education is very valuable. It will affect your whole life. But I understand most of you have already gone through that part of your life. The last part, remember, the learning years, the earning years, the last part is the returning years. So Kathy and I will be retiring soon. And when we do, our goal will be to divest ourselves of our assets so that when we die or Jesus comes, we will be totally broke. That's a Christian perspective. Because I'm, listen, everybody here is smart enough to understand 20 years from now, if Jesus has not come, I don't believe we have that much time, but if he hasn't, I'm not going to be speaking in front of you. I'm going to be in a rest home watching 3ABN. <laughs> Do you understand? I mean, you just got to be smart enough to know that. We don't live forever on this earth, aside from eternity. Isn't it true? We just have to know those kinds of things so you plan for the future. So I decided for this session, you guys are going to turn your papers over and write on the back now, your retirement and estate plan could also serve as your end-time plan. And here it is. Plan to be debt-free, including your home mortgage. Have a reasonable income stream. And have basic health insurance. If you have those things, you can retire and you can be ready for the Lord to come. So I'm going to show you now what that looks like. It's, I've done it in a little triangle here. And you can make a little triangle. It's just got three sections. We're going to look at the bottom one first. The first thing everybody has to have is financial independence. Have your personal needs cared for. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Ellen White would give stewardship sermons so powerful that people would come to the front weeping and say, should we sell our homes? And she would say, 
I looked it up on the internet again today. You can do it yourself. It's very easy. Just put sell houses or sell homes and, and you know, look on the internet or the, the search engine. Here's the story. She would always tell people the same answer. And that is, God may not ask you to sell your house now, but let it, him know that it's absolutely his and you're willing to when the time comes. But then she adds, if you have houses and lands in the plural. Do you understand? More of these things than you need beyond your necessities. Sell it and put the money into the cause. That's what she says. Look it up. You'll find it there. But anyway, what can you do to this? Financial independence is the foundation of our estate plan. We cannot give away everything because we have to have something to live on, something in reserve. So you need to have an income stream and so on. Now, I'm going to talk to you. Somebody stopped me in the hall today, so I just stuck this in. Uh, Lori, my administrative assistant who does my PowerPoints, would probably shoot me because I've got a different color here. But nonetheless, you guys can still read it, can't you? A gift annuity is kind of a neat deal. The conventional wisdom in the financial world today is understand what you're going to need in retirement. For example, I'm just going to give you guys a basic illustration. Let's just say that you get $1,500 from Social Security and you have maybe $1,000 from your other investments or retirement plan or whatever it is, and you have $2,500 a month coming in. Well, that's probably okay if you don't have any debts at all. You're debt free. But let's just say you'd like to have $3,000 a month coming in. How could you get the other $500? Anybody have an idea? You can work at Walmart. You know, welcoming people, you know, welcome to Walmart, you, you hand them a buggy, you know, that kind of, that people do that. That's what they're doing. That. They're, not, they're not there because they love everybody. You understand? They're, they're supplementing the Social Security. It's, it's pretty simple. It's true, isn't it? I mean, you can enjoy your work, but you'd rather be gardening or something. Uh, the whole idea is the conventional wisdom out there is you should annuitize the difference between what you have guaranteed coming in and what you will need. So in the illustration I just had, you have $2,500 coming in a month, but you'd like $3,000. How can you get the $5,000? Well, you can work part-time, but a charitable gift annuity will do the trick as well. So when Kathy and I sell our home in Maryland and we move to Tennessee, I will just tell you that real estate is worth a lot more in Maryland for the same house down here would be like 100000 at least less. Does everybody understand that part? If we were to do a charitable gift annuity, through the GC, for example, to benefit a number of charities that we want to see happen. What would happen then is that we would be given a guarantee of $500 a month, approximately, till the last one of us dies or till Jesus comes. That guarantees an income for me. Do you understand? Now, the gift annuity is primarily for the benefit of the donor. That, that is the, the fact that I'm not really benefiting the charity till I die. But it does put your charitable intent out there because when you do die, the balance, whatever's in there, goes to that cause. You understand? That's what a charitable gift annuity is. A lot of people don't know this, but Ellen White actually recommended this. And I'll show it to you. I found this interesting statement. And you can find it on your CD-ROM. There are those among us who have a surplus of means, but they think they need it to sustain themselves. Let matters be arranged that these persons shall have interest on their money as long as they shall live, and let them donate the principal to the cause and the work of God. Thus they will return to the Lord that which is his own. Is that incredible or not? That is the definition of a charitable gift annuity. That is it there. Now, once you, let me just, we'll go on here now. The next part, we're, we're looking at the middle of the triangle. This is how to plan for end times. Same kind of thing you do for your state plan. Family legacy. And I'll, I'll give you a little idea here. 
This one has the most emotion associated with it. Uh, when I teach my financial seminars on the weekend, this is the last thing I talk about because if I did the first thing, everybody would get up and leave because it's just, it's so contrary to what most people believe. They have to establish credibility, of course, to begin with. So uh, let me just tell you, this is especially true here in North America where people grow up with the notion that when their parents die, they, the children, should receive their parents' assets divided equally among siblings. Is, do you believe that's a true statement? Yes. Okay. Now I'm going to show you something here just incredible though. What about minor children? Well, Ellen White indicates that, and we have, a, I didn't mention this earlier, but I'll just point it out to you now. We have a new book on, on money management called Faith and Finance. You saw it at general conference session probably, and it's in Adventist book centers and uh, Advent Source and so on. Uh, it's a 12 lesson small group Bible study on money management, very, very good. And the topics are all discussed and fleshed out that, that I'm mentioning to you now. Provision should be made for minor children, for those who are still dependent on their parents for at least part of their food, their clothing, their shelter, and education. Parents must teach their children to become independent adults and good money managers. The very best thing you can do for your kids is teach them to become independent adults. Is that true? Yeah. You understand. Grown children, many financial counselors and others say there's evidence of both sides regarding leaving money or assets to grown children. For example, here's Ecclesiastes 2.21. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage or portion to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Is that incredible? Well, that's Ecclesiastes 2.21. Same man said, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So the big question is, how is this apparent conflict to be resolved? And I'm going to show it to you what it is. Today in America, things are quite different than they were in Bible times. Inheritances are generally or usually windfalls going to career people who live separately from their parents and who are financially independent. Is that a true statement? I just put it down there. Is that pretty true? Okay, let's go on. In Old Testament times, passing ownership of land to descendants was vital. Without it, succeeding generations couldn't farm or raise livestock. I'm going to give you a little challenge. Type in in your Bible search engine, inheritance. There's about 40 references will pop up. Almost every one of them talks about giving farmland to children so they could make their own living. Now, we have two children. Our daughter, Melissa, is the associate editor of Liberty Magazine, and our son is an attorney here in Florida. And I will just tell you something very interesting. Neither of them want farmland. <laughs> so if I'm going to help them to become independent adults, what do I do? Give them an education. It's very, very simple. So we gave our children, you know, assisted them through school and gave them their cash inheritance upon their graduation from college. Andrew paid his whole way through law school with his inheritance. It's a smart idea. Now I'm going to tell you something amazing. Let, we'll go on here and you'll see. Today it would seem appropriate to pass on a business to children who are depending on them, that is the businesses, and who will continue to operate them. But notice what the Bible says about legacy. It says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. Could it be that values are a real basic legacy? Think about this. Would you be happy if your parents left you these values? Ethical values such as honesty, justice, and fairness. Personal values such as modesty, loyalty, and faithfulness. Or emotional values such as compassion, kindness, and generosity. Those are the kind of things that we're talking about. Other values such as good citizenship, financial responsibility. 
would I be more happy to have the uh, legacy that my dad ran up big bills and moved to other states? Or would I be happy to know that people who see me, your dad always paid all of his bills? Do you understand? So it is financial responsibility, frugality, good stewardship, faith in God, spiritual commitment, punctuality, competence, good health, care for others, time with family. This one is a big one to me, time with family. They say that no one ever says on his deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. So you understand this whole big deal of values. And then, of course, love for education and self-improvement. Now, where I got that triangle is from a book called Values-Based Estate Planning by uh, Dr. Scott Fithian. And he says, leaving no money, but passing values onto heirs is acceptable. They, will, they likely will manage their lives very well. Leaving money to heirs who have poorly developed values is asking for trouble. By the way, when you leave a large amount of money to a child, listen carefully. They will not spend it the way you would spend it. They will spend it the way they would spend it. Do you understand? It's very valuable to understand that. Ellen White says the very best legacy which parents can leave their children is a knowledge of useful labor and the example of a life characterized by disinterested benevolence. By such a life they show the true value of money that is only to be appreciated for the good that it will accomplish in relieving their own wants and the necessities of others and advancing the cause of God. So here's something I want you guys to write down. These are very, very valuable texts. Uh, what I share with you, much of the writings of Ellen White that we have today, aside from the Testimonies and Conflict series, are compilations. You understand like uh, Council on Diet and Foods, for example? Well, if you really want to know about tithing, where would you look? Clue, I just gave it to you a few minutes ago. Ninth Testimonies 245 to 252. But if you want to know what to do with your estate, those are the two places. It's not a compilation. There are two chapters written as chapters by Ellen White. And the first one is to age the wealthy parents. And the second one is called wills and legacies. So this one is an important one. The first one, volume three of the testimonies, 116 to 130. And volume four, page 476 to 485. Now, since I'm an attorney, people come to me frequently and say, we'd like for you to help us fill out our will. And uh, I say to them, well, you know, it's not appropriate for an attorney to give you counsel about your will. You decide what you want, and then I can put it in legalese for you and get it properly you know, notarized and signed and all of that. But I said, before you do that, I want you to read these two statements, these two chapters. Then you'll know what a Christian will is, and then the burden is on you to do what the right thing is. You get the idea? So I'll give you an illustration. Uh, a number of years ago, it's probably been 18 years ago, my mother called me one evening, and she was living out in the Northwest where she still lives, and she says, she's the only person in the world that calls me Eddie. She says, Eddie, your father and I have decided that who, to write our wills. Now, most people think that when they write the will, the next thing's gonna happen, they're gonna die. Uh, the problem is you don't die any sooner, you just die prepared. And I think everybody should have a will very, very carefully. By the way, if you do not prepare a will, the state's laws of descent and distribution and testacy come to play. And the state, of course, assumes that you are an atheist. Listen carefully. If you don't have a will, not one cent of your estate will go to any ASI organization, 3ABN, or anything like that. Did you guys hear what I just said? 
the state will tell you where it goes. It goes to your nearest relatives, whether you like them or not, whether they're Christians or not, whether they need the money or not. So if you want your money to go somewhere, you must make a will. And I will just tell you, Kathy and I practice what I preach. And Kathy and I, a couple years ago, went down to uh, our attorney in Silver Spring, and we have our wills done, our durable power of attorneys done, we have our medical directives, our living wills, and so on. Do you understand? You don't want to be without those things. This is very valuable. While you have your wits about you, you have to do that. So here's this information. Okay. Ron Blue, who is, many of you know, the, the, the splitting airs and other things that he's written, uh, his evangelical Christian lives in Atlanta and manages millions of dollars for Christian businesses and so on. He says it's a parents and grandparents' responsibility to entrust God's resources to children only if they have demonstrated the ability to handle those resources in a manner that would be pleasing to him who is the owner of all. The fact that because you have a child should not make the child the automatic beneficiary of your estate. And then he went on to say, you're a steward of God's resources in his behalf. You're not a steward of your children's resources. You're not accountable to your children about how you transfer or spend his money. That's God's money. You are accountable to God. Uh, it's interesting, my son, as I told you, our son Andrew is an attorney. And when we were moving to Washington, D.C. a number of years ago, he was helping to load the van. And it just happened that the file cabinet that our will was in, while it was being loaded, Fortunately, it didn't dump out, but the drawer came open that had our wills in it. And we had talked about this, you know, in family worship and so on. It's no big surprise to them. But the most interesting thing is, uh, several days later, after we were in Washington, Andrew said to me, Dad, uh, while we were loading the truck, this thing came open. I saw last will and testament. So I took the occasion to read it to Melissa, his sister, our will. And he says, one thing is for sure, we're better off with you alive than dead. <laughs> so... <laughs> because we still contribute to them, you know, and we've helped them and so on. The whole point is, what is the primary goal of parenting? To train their kids to become independent adults. And once you've done that, then your, sh your shifting goes to the uh, advancement of the cause of God. So if parents, while they live, would assist their children to help themselves, it would be better than to leave them a large amount of death. So we're talking token gifts, you know, instead of the whole estate kind of thing. Children who are left, Ellen White noted, uh, to rely principally on their own exertions, make better men and women, and are better fitted for practical life than those children who have depended on their father's estate. I don't need to ask you if these are true statements. I mean, anybody who knows anything about life knows they're definitely true. What's the spiritual legacy? That's the last part. Now, here comes the neat part for me. Once I have established my financial independence, let's just say that I'm debt-free and I have a reasonable income stream coming in, and my children are taken care of, then what do I get to think about? I get to about thinking about building one-day churches in Madagascar or in Peru. Or do, you or, or do you understand the idea? I mean, this is incredible to be able to see things happen because of God's blessing and our generosity. God doesn't ask us to put it in a vacuum tube and shoot it back to heaven. He says, do with it, you know, as I would do if I were here. Help advance the cause of God. So in our case, now this would not be true if you have minor children. You understand minor children, they're still dependent on their parents. But in our case, our line is right there because we've already done this part. So we can start returning assets to God. This to me is really exciting. If something interesting happened. Uh, Kathy, uh, you guys, many of you have heard me speak before, but you know that Kathy is actually the money manager of our family and she's been doing this for lo these 43 years very well. And so the interesting part is, though, every year about March, 
she hands me a whole big box full of receipts and stuff well organized and says, you're the attorney, you do the taxes. So I get to do the taxes every year. But now we have TurboTax and so on. So I just get on the computer and type in all the stuff. And when I typed in our contributions last year, most of you know these things, a little bell comes and goes beep, 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 and a red light saying, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? So you have to override the computer to contribute what you want to do. You get the point? The bottom line is, when you get to that stage of your life, shouldn't that bell go off almost every year? You get the point. Okay. So let me, we'll talk a few about these. Here's Letourneau. Uh, this is the late Christian businessman and philanthropist. The question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. Pretty big deal. Uh, people complain that the church talks too much about money because they don't understand God's ownership in our stewardship. How we manage God's money is so important that he, God, inspired Bible writers to talk about this topic more than any other topic, some 2,500 verses in the Bible on money and possessions and our attitude toward them. So here's something real interesting. I was going to delete this slide, but it is kind of funny, so I decided to leave it. Most people spend two-thirds of their lives accumulating their assets, and when they finally reach retirement age with a comfortable nest egg, financial advisors tell them they should start giving it all away. Because, you know, you're only going to have, oh, I'll just tell you this. Whether you're a Christian or not, I would assume most of you are Christians. When you die, you're not going to take anything with you. You've got to make plans for something. You understand. So this will be interesting. Uh, Scott Fithian says for about large estates can have estate and gift tax consequences. But he noted, it is simple to eliminate the estate tax by leaving 100% of the estate to charity at death. Only minimal lifetime planning is required and maximum flexibility is retained. Of course, most of us would talk about doing it uh, uh, quicker, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. Once the portion of the estate is identified, remember the top part of the triangle, that can be returned to God, then a decision must be made as to when and how this will be done. Will it be done now, that is, inter vitivos while living, or will it be done with testamentary documents after death? I'm going to tell you that it's much, much better to do the giving while you're still alive. And there's eight reasons that I have here. Usually I give seven everything, but this one I have eight. Donors can see the results of the gift. Would you like to see the smiling faces of children and adults when their new church is opened up and going in? You understand. You're not going to see that from the grave. Ministry or the person can benefit now when the need is the greatest. Another one is it prevents fighting among family and friends after the donor's death. And I've been involved in estate planning long enough to know this happens. Anybody think it doesn't? Family and friends argue about estate planning. If it's gone, there's nothing to fight about. This is important. Okay. It also sets a good example of family values, of generosity and love for others. It minimizes estate tax consequences. It guarantees the gift will go to the desired entity. Now, I can tell you that just because you have a properly drafted will does not necessarily mean that your intentions will be fully carried out. Because somebody will challenge the will, for example. But even, listen, you guys remember Leona Helmsley died about five years ago? What, what was her plan for 12 million of her dollars? Go to her dog. Now, this is incredible. I mean, how much dog food could you eat? You know, 12 million dollars. This is incredible. Just recently, about two years ago, a federal judge ruled that that was too much for the dog, and they gave 10 million to one of her other charities and left only 2 million for the dog. Now, this is incredible, but what I'm telling you is it wasn't what she had in her will. Do you understand? Even though it was properly drafted will. 
Another one that demonstrates the donor's Christ-like motivation, and probably one of the best, it stores up treasures in heaven. Amen. This one is incredible when you think about it, really. Uh, Ron Blue made this amazing statement. Ellen White said something almost exactly like it, and I want you guys to tell me what you think about it. It's pretty interesting. My own belief is that you get no eternal reward for assets given at death. You don't have any choice. You're leaving it all anyway. How could you receive a reward for something you kept your entire life and were forced to give only at death? God will reward you later for your sacrifices now, for your faith shown now, for your unselfishness now in this life. Now, Ellen White made another simple statement like it. Those who neglect known duty by not answering to God's claims upon them in this life and who soothe their consciences by calculating on making their bequests at death will receive no words of commendation from the Master, nor will they receive a reward. And that's pretty plain. That's volume four of the Testimonies, page 480. It's right in that section I told you to write down the verses for before. She says, they practice no self-denial, but selfishly retained their means as long as they could, yielding it up only when death claimed them, that which many propose to defer until they're about to die. If they were Christians, indeed, they would do while they have a stronghold on life. That's, you know, in the legal world, we call that testamentary capacity. I mean, just because I'm alive doesn't mean I can make a will. Does everybody understand that? You've got to have your wits about you. You know who your kids are, you know, your, your heirs, you don't have to know what your assets are, name, you know, where your assets, those kinds of things. So, what are the spiritual options? We're going to look at several things here. There are hundreds of causes to support with charitable spiritual legacy funds. Now, listen carefully. I am a person who's very, very keen, and I think pretty much up to date on tithing. I was on the Use of Tithe Study Commission at the General Conference for three years, and I was one of the writers and researchers for that committee. And I will just tell you, I understand Bible and Spirit of Prophecy about tithing. But let me just tell you here, the tithe is holy and belongs to God. Is that true? Leviticus 27, verse 30. And God says, I have given the tithe in Israel to the Levites as an inheritance in exchange for the work to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting, which is Numbers 18, 21. So God says, the tithe is mine. I'm going to give it to support the workers of the church. So it's non-discretionary from my perspective. Isn't it true? I mean, I don't send my kids to church school with my tithe, you understand? The whole point is very, very important. Once the tithe has been taken care of, though we're back to the statement here, the funds that are left will be classified as offerings and their use is discretionary to the giver. So you can do with it whatever you think God would want you to do, whatever your favorite you know, Christian ministry is. Does that make sense? So you can understand that if I'm really keen on 3ABN or if I'm really keen on Adventist Frontier Missions and I'm talking about some I am keen on and you understand those kinds of things or you know, if I like the, the quiet hour, whatever it might be, anybody's ministry here that's mentioned, there are people who would like to do that. And I will just tell you that it's important that it, once the tithe is, is taken care of that these portions that we can return to God are at our own discretion. Now, this is from Acts, the first chapter and verse 8. You'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Who said that? Jesus. That's written in red if you have a red letter edition of the Bible. Jesus told that to the disciples. And we find guidance, this Acts 1a, regarding the scope of our mission interests. We can fill in the names of our cities where we live. This to me is very interesting and uh, the respective areas where we are, discover that they could easily match our community, our local church, our conference, and the world field, because they're talked there. 
Jesus told the rich young ruler that by helping others, especially the poor, we store up treasures in heaven and become one of his disciples. So here's some options for spiritual legacy. Just, I just put a few down. Obviously, this is not exhaustive, but Christian or gospel ministry in many ways, Christian education. I want to tell you a story that to me is incredible. A pastor told me this, and I confirmed it with the person that it happened to. A young man graduated from high school in a local church. And uh, I don't want to give too many details about this, but I will just tell you that this pastor asking, what are you planning to do with the rest of your life? He says, I'm just going to get a job in the mines like my father did, the coal mines. And he said, have you ever thought about going to college? And he said, well, I've thought about it but I just couldn't afford it. And the pastor said, what if the church family was willing to help you through school, would you go? Yes. It's kind of difficult for me to tell you this, but I want to tell you the story anyway. When the pastor took him to the bus to go to college, he noticed that the young man didn't have a belt on, so he took his own belt off and gave the young man. The young man today is an ordained minister and a licensed attorney, kind of like me, it isn't me, but I will just tell you, what would have happened if somebody hadn't said, we'll help this kid? You get the point? It's incredible, really. There's so many opportunities and so many wonderful young people out there that would do something. You know, pay somebody's way to, to AFCO or to Arise or someplace like that where they can get trained to be a, a, a Bible worker or something, you know, be valuable in their church. Help to build new churches. It's really incredible to me. When Kathy and I went with a, a physician, his wife, Dr. Galen Johnson, his wife, Kitty, we went over to India several years ago and we did these, uh, you know, 10 village evangelistic meetings. Well, every village now has a brand new church in it. This is incredible to me to understand that, you know, we can do this for people. And by the way, God asked us to do that. You understand, of course, that almost all of the people, the thousands of people that have been baptized in India over the last few years, most of them have come from the lower class, the untouchable class, and they have virtually no assets. They love and appreciate their, ministry, their, their contact with God, and God is blessing them, as you understand, but they're starting out from zero. I mean, it's, it's amazing, and I think it's a great privilege and an opportunity for us to do something for people like that. Another one is to help pay off the mortgage of your local church. Help support school, clinics, orphanages abroad. Uh, I have kind of a soft spot in my heart for little kids. They're so, so cute. Kathy and I, I went with a group of ASI people down to uh, Brazil a few years ago to help start uh, ASI in Brazil. Some of you are old enough to know that for three years I was the secretary of ASI at the General Conference. And so I went to Brazil and uh, Milton Afonso met us down there and took us out to some of his orphanages. And these precious little children, they're just so incredible. You want to adopt every one of them, they're so sweet. And we actually stopped in there right in the middle of the day and they'd been out playing for recess and they were all sweaty and dirty and you know, they, they were just amazing. And so the lady who was the head of the place said to Dr. Afonso, take these guys on a little walk and come back in about half an hour. We came back and every one of these little boys had just had a shower. I don't know if they ran them through a hose or what, but their hair was all wet, clean little shorts on, cute as can be and had orange juice squeezed out for us and they sang us a song. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, where could you spend money better than helping little children like that? It's incredible, really. And, you know, India, wherever you go, there's incredible. Haiti, anywhere. There's just awesome things you can do. Uh, another one is sponsor a young person on a mission trip. 
Kathy and I were involved in going to the highlands of New Guinea in the Christmas break of 1989. And we took a, our kids with us, our two children, but we took a number of, uh, of their friends with us to New Guinea. And every one of them have remembered that as a highlight in their entire life. I've never met anybody on a mission trip that felt that it was a bummer that they went. Most everybody says it was more of a blessing to me than it was to them. And our kids told us after being in New Guinea, where the kids in Minna Village where we built our church had no toys. Did you hear what I just said? They had no toys. And yet they were happy as all get out. It was just amazing. So Andrew and Melissa both told us on the way back, Don't, we'll never complain again as long as we live. And they never have. It's just amazing. Just going there on that mission trip, pretty amazing stuff. Okay, we've got to go on. Here's one that's important. Practical benevolence, that is helping others, helping advance the cause of God, will give spiritual life to thousands of nominal professors of the truth. Now, what is a nominal professor of the truth? In name only. And, you know, we always say that if you're in name only, if you are arrested for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict you. So this is kind of a name only Christian. But if you get involved in helping others, what will happen is something interesting. It will transform them from selfish, covetous worshipers of money into earnest, faithful co-workers with Christ in the salvation of sinners. Would you like to have a church full of those kind of people that have been transformed like that? Pretty amazing. Now, I'm going to tell you something interesting. We're told one reason why there's such a dearth of the Spirit of God is that so many are robbing God. We're praying for the latter rain, aren't we? By the way, we should be praying for the early rain. Does everybody understand that? I mean, there's a time for the latter rain. In my book, Battle of the Spirits, I you know, put that all out. But I will just tell you, the early rain is way beyond what most of us have ever thought about. The early rain is so incredible that when it came, unlearned men, men without degrees like I have and many of you have, unlearned men were able to speak foreign languages without an accent perfectly. Is that incredible or not? They were able to raise the dead to heal sick people. This is amazing. And to convert 3,000 people in one day and one city. So you understand early rain power is pretty significant, isn't it? It doesn't mean we shouldn't be praying for the latter rain, but listen carefully. If I'm robbing God, there's no point in me praying for the Holy Spirit because I'm not going to get it. Do you believe that's true? It's true. So we have to understand that there are certain principles that we have in mind when we think about it. The love of money, we're told, the desire for wealth is the golden chain that binds men to Satan. Steps to Christ, page 44. This is a real common place to look, Steps to Christ. The love of money, the desire for wealth is the golden chain that binds people to Satan. No one can serve two masters, we're told. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The next one is just like it. I'm going to show you something interesting. Councils on Stewardship has two very interesting end-time statements. It is now that our brethren should be cutting down their possessions instead of increasing them. We're about to move to a better country, even a heavenly. Then let us not be dwellers upon the earth, but be getting things into a compact, a compass as possible. Small assets. This to me is pretty interesting. She goes on to say this one here. The work of God is to become more extensive, and if His people follow His counsel, there will not be much means in their possession to be consumed in the final conflagration. In other words, not much of our stuff is going to get burned up at the end. 
All will have laid up their treasures where moth and rust cannot corrupt, and the heart will not have a cord to bind it to this earth. I'm sure you've read this before, but I want you to understand something interesting. When the economy crashed about a year and a half, two years ago, and the stock market went down 54% in less than a week, I thought to myself, I have kept my stuff too long. What can we do about this? I don't want to be caught like this when God comes back. And I think, frankly, that God is giving us a couple years, maybe three at the most, to get our houses in order and to put those seven things I showed you on the front of that page into your business plan. It's very, very important that we understand that because the very means that is now so sparingly invested in the cause of God and that is selfishly retained will in a little while be cast with all idols to the moles and to the bats. Money will soon depreciate in value very suddenly when the reality of eternal scenes opens to the senses of man. Amazing. And then I want to show you how things will go in the end. Council on Stewardship, page 40. In the last extremity, before this work shall close, thousands, the thousands of dollars, will be cheerfully laid upon the altar. Men and women will feel it is a blessed privilege to share in the work of preparing souls to stand in the great day of God. And they will give hundreds as readily as dollars are given now. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask you this question. If you're a deacon at your church and you receive the offering plate, what is the most common bill you see in the offering plate? A $1 bill. I'm going to tell you that if this happened, the deacons would faint away dead right in church when they see at the end of the row that every bill is $100. Wouldn't that be incredible? That's what it's talking about here. People will say, this is the most important thing in the world to me. I'm giving big money to advance the cause of God. Now, obviously, you wouldn't do that because you'd put it in an offering envelope, wouldn't you? Because as long as we get deductions for you know, contributions to charities, you want to be sure you get a receipt for it. But you understand the point. Okay, now here's something amazing. Did Christ professed people but realize how near is the end of all the work for the salvation of souls, they would do three things. This is from Council on Stewardship, page 4041. First of all, they would sacrifice uh, their possessions. That should be there instead of the, their possessions as freely as did the members of the early church. The second thing is they would work for the advancement of God's cause as worldly men labor to acquire riches. Now, how many of you, uh, I think this would be fun to ask, how many of you going through college or any time in your life have worked more than one job? Has anybody worked two jobs before? You know, I mean, uh, most of us have done something like that. But let me show you this next one to me is very interesting. They would exercise tact and skill and earnest and unselfish labor would be put forth to acquire means not to hoard, but to pour into the treasury of the Lord. I put a couple of these in here in the last minute, and I see that should be P-O-U-R instead of poor, but you understand the point. The time is coming when we cannot sell at any price. The decree will soon go forth prohibiting men to buy or sell from any man save he that hath the mark of the beast. Now, I'm going to tell you something interesting. Kathy and I are going to sell our house in the next few months, we think. Uh, if we advertise that it doesn't sell, what's the reason? Price behind the market, current market, right? Just real simple. What's the, what's the remedy? Lower the price. Listen carefully. What if I cannot sell? Not just buy. I cannot sell. Nobody can buy it if I put it down to $10. Isn't that what it says? It does. Now we'll look at another one interesting. 
Jesus has not promised that all who accept him will become wealthy by the world's standards. However, he has promised many things to those who follow and obey him. And here's the first one. He will supply our needs. That's Philippians 4.19. And that is according to his riches in Christ Jesus, as you know. Number two, he'll be with us wherever we go. You guys like that part? And then the last one is he will give us peace. A lot of people can really stress out over this finance business. I can tell you that most of you are old enough to know when you used to can your own vegetables and raise a garden and those kinds of things. We can do those kind of things. We can exist if our stuff isn't taken away from us because we're in debt. This is the point I'm trying to make here. Do you understand that when this, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, of, is it Bernanke, the guy who, who uh, took so much money from people? Was $65 billion from 5,000 clients? Madoff, Bernie Madoff, yeah, that's it. Bernanke's the guy in the Federal Reserve. <laughs> He's doing it anyway, but, okay. Yeah, Bernie Madoff, I'm sorry. I usually have a picture of Bernie Madoff. But you know, he built uh, more than 5,000 clients out of $65 billion of their assets. A number of his former clients have committed suicide. But the Bible says in Isaiah 26.3, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. So Ellen White says, this one, I like this statement. There are those who are ready and willing to invest in the cause of God. Those who are will be blessed in their efforts to acquire money. It is no sin to acquire and control property. As the stewards of God, holding it only until he shall require it for the necessities of his work. That's the important thing to understand. Uh, God gives the people the power to get wealth. You, you're familiar with that, of course. And something I want to show you now. I frequently speak to workers' meetings, we call them. And uh, I'm, uh, Kathy and I are going next month to Iceland to speak to the workers' meeting. And we're going to do a, a, a seminar for all the churches in Iceland. Guess how many workers there are there? About six. Five or six. That's the whole team. Real interesting situation. But, you know, we go to lots of workers' meetings. We've been to where there have been hundreds of them. But I'll just tell you something interesting. The devil also has workers' meetings. And I'm going to tell you something. Ellen White was given a view into one of the devil's workers' meetings, and this is what she heard the devil saying. As the people of God approach the perils of the last days, remember our seminar was built about money management in the last days? Satan holds earnest consultation with his angels as to the most successful plan of overthrowing their faith. Says the great deceiver, now comes the quote, Go make the possessors of lands and money drunk with the cares of this life. Present the world before them in its most attractive light, th that they may lay up their treasures here and fix their affections upon earthly things. Do you think the devil's been successful at this? It's amazing. Now he goes on to say, make them care more for money than for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and the spread of the truths we hate. And we need not fear their influence, for we know that every selfish, covetous person will fall under our power and will finally be separated from God's people. Keep their money. You understand? They're finally going to leave God's people. It's pretty incredible. And I use this in my current seminars on the certainty of the second coming. It's from Desire of Ages 636. Satan sees that his time is short. He has set all his agencies at work that men may be either deceived, deluded, occupied, which means busy, and entranced until the day of probation shall be ended and the door of mercy shall be forever shut. Now this to me is amazing. 
the concepts there. The devil knows time is short. We understood that. We stipulated that at the beginning of the seminar. But in addition to that, the devil has none of his workers on break right now. Nobody's on vacation. That's going to happen during the millennium. <laughs> Does it say they're all at work? Yeah. He's got all of his agencies at work that men may be either deceived, deluded, occupied, or entranced until the day of probation shall be ended and the door of mercy forever shut. By the way, very interesting concept right here also. I believe that no one will be surprised by the second coming of Christ, not even the wicked. Believe me, my friends, when the seven last plagues begin to fall, even the most hardened atheist will know it's over. What will surprise people is not the second coming, but the close of probation. And that's what Ellen White says right here. He's going to try to keep people not to the second coming, but just to the close of probation. When the plagues begin to fall, it's over, my friends, and everybody will have made their decision before that time. It's very, very important to understand. Well, uh, I've got two more minutes, don't I? I'm going to tell you something incredible. Most of you guys are business people, and I want to tell you, people will ask you this question. Should we really be building buildings around the world, including churches and schools and orphanages and so on, if Jesus is about to come back and all this stuff's going to get burned up? Is that a good question or not? Yeah. So my final slides are three slides on that topic. Volume 6 of the Testimonies, 440, 441. Just you can write the reference down. 60, 440, 441. A great work must be done throughout all the world, and let no one conclude that because the end is near. There is no need of special effort to build up the various institutions as the cause shall demand. When the Lord shall bid us to make no further effort to build meeting houses and establish schools, sanitariums, publishing houses, it will be time for us to fold our hands and let the Lord close up the work. But now is our opportunity to show our zeal for God and our love for humanity. Use your means to create rather than your influence to diminish. Agencies for good. Since the Lord is soon to come, act decidedly and determinedly to increase the facilities, buildings, if you please, that a great work may be done in a short time. And then here's one that's amazing to me. Since the Lord is soon coming, it is time to put out our money to the exchangers, time to put every dollar we can spare into the Lord's treasury, that institutions may be established for the education of workers who shall be instructed as were those in the schools of the prophets. If the Lord comes and finds you doing this work, putting the roof on a new church, he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Amen. That is incredible to me. So we should be establishing institutions. There's no question about that. Well, that's all that I will share with you, because time is up. And thank you for your kind attention. I hope it's been helpful to you. We'll have a prayer to close. And if, while I'm putting my stuff away, if some of you have questions, I'll be happy to talk with you briefly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together in this seminar. May your Holy Spirit guide us as we continue in our own lives. May we be able to practice and apply many of the principles in our own lives. May we be among that group who hear these awesome words, well done when you return. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.